0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me your host Dr Jonathan Sakia. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Elizabeth McIntyre, consultant hematologist at the University of Paris and president-elect of the Biomedical Alliance in Europe as well as past president of the European Hematology Association or EHA. Elizabeth completed her medical training initially in the UK at Newcastle University and then clinical training at University College London. She gained her PhD on pediatric T acute lymphoblastic leukemia in France from Saint Louis Hospital in Paris and also completed a postdoctorate period at Harvard in the United States of America studying oncogenic and immunogenetic interactions in T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Elizabeth is clearly a leading haematologist in the field and a great role model for women in science, which she's spoken about in the past. In this episode, we'll take a look back at Elizabeth's career to date and cover some of her highlights, as well as, I guess, some challenges. For one, leading the EHA through the COVID-19 pandemic. We're not deep into medicine, Elizabeth likes to row, so given she's obviously got a little bit of free time, it's great that she chose to spend it with us, and it's an utter delight to have you with us today, Professor Elizabeth McIntyre. Welcome to the EMJ podcast.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Excellent. So let's start right at the beginning, thinking back to your early career in the 70s. What, what inspired you to pursue a career in medicine?
1: As my accent and my name indicates, I'm, I'm Scottish, I'm also French as well now, but uh, when I was growing up on a, on a farm in the north of Scotland, I was told, or at least I understood, that, that the only jobs women could aspire to were to be at best a secretary or a nurse. Now, that's not why I ended up being an auxiliary nurse in the I ward in Inverness in about, let's say, 73. Um, but at the end of my stay, I was informed that I wouldn't make a terribly good nurse. So. I don't think it's fair to say that I became a doctor by exclusion, um, but but since I was fairly good at passing exams, I, I was told that I should choose between law and medicine, and obviously I, I chose the, the the latter. Perhaps a slightly less um, perhaps a slightly other a slight other aspect is my father suffered from cardiovascular disease throughout my childhood, and uh, and and went the way that uh, multiple stroke sufferers went over a long and chronic period. So relieving suffering was a was something that I wanted to do for, for fairly obvious reasons. So anyway, that's why I went into me- medicine. I don't think I had any intentions of becoming a haematologist, but uh, I think probably quite a lot of us, if we're honest, fall into our specialty rather than uh, um, setting our sights on it decades in advance or years in advance.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with you. Um, and, you know, having had the privilege of doing many of these podcasts now and talking to people, the similarities there tends to very often be one very very inspirational teacher for me it was in surgery because i actually <laughs> i thought i was going to do hematology because the <laughs> professor um uh in in liverpool at the time was a, a renowned hematologist and uh um uh, bellingham Alastair bellingham wonderful man and um And then I met this surgical leader who just uh, um, who was also the dean, and he I I was just completely taken with him and the things that he could do in an operating theatre. And I have to tell you that I I'm a um, a Scotophile. I spent a couple of years uh, living uh, in Glasgow and fell in love with the place and fell in love with uh, salmon fishing in Scotland and probably the best known product of the. Of, of the highlands and the islands. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of everything Scottish, including Burns Night. So let's, let's dig into your leadership within the EHA, the European Haematology Association. What, what were some of the highlights and challenges of your presidency? And what are the things you look back on in all the years you've had in the society as wins for patients living with hematologic disease?
1: My my affair with EHA goes back a very long way, right to when it was created in in the early 1990s. And um, to 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 jump back to what you said, it's it's very good to be Scottish in Europe. Uh, we've never really threatened anybody, and, and mo- most most people love us, and they associate it with, us with all sorts of nice things. And it's inarguably easier for me to be a Scottish hematologist in Paris than a, than than it would be for an England an English hematologist, or perhaps even more precisely, somebody from London, because the rivalry is is all with London, not with not with Edinburgh. So. Of course I joined EHA I'm I'm what I call a trans-European I trained in one country and I I chose mainly for for um what would I call it amorous reasons uh, to 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 move to France uh, I I came for a year and and married a French hematologist and and I'm still here 30 years later so for me the European health space is just it's my space I worked my way through different activities with them, culminating in the, the 21 to 23 presidency. So I got the immediate post-COVID period, although we did have to weather the COVID storm when I was um, president-elect. I think it's, it's been a huge shake-up for all of us. And, you know, I, I, all, all recognition to the horrors of COVID, it's also um, pushed us into modernisation. And I think it's our job to, to make the most of that modernisation. It's, it's affected Congress, it's affected the way we interact, it's affected everything. Um, and I was lucky enough to be there, partially at that time, but also appointing a new executive director. And that for a European society is, is a big issue so the, the 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 medical staff have to roll their sleeves up and get involved in in our society while we're handing over between executive directors so it it was a unique period and i have no regrets of having been president during that period
0: and and um, the the wins for patients living with hematologic disease i guess during your career i've i've been involved in Uh, a a triumvirate of charities founded by an Englishman living in in Los Angeles, Starlight, Starbright and First Star, which look after, provide for the the needs of children living with wretched diseases and situations. And during my tenure, I've noticed the change in what happens to kids diagnosed with with malignancy. I mean, Mm. initially it was a death
1: sentence, now, no it's a huge change children are now less likely to die of their disease than of the treatment that we use for it. So, so the obvious corollary of that is we now have to cure as well using less. And how do we, how do we do that? That means um, selecting the patients who really do need the heaviest treatment and, and sparing those that can get away with less. I, I, I work in a paediatric pedi- hospital, Nick for Malade, but I'm, I was trained in adult haematology. And, and because I'm a diagnostic haematologist, I, I actually stopped seeing patients when I moved from London to Paris, because um, I think the cultural codes in medical communication around unpleasant diseases are complicated, including at the intra-European level. And, um, and the implicit versus the explicit communication between a doctor and, and his or her patient um, is something that I found quite daunting. My, my French wasn't that great when I arrived in Paris, it's still not that great, but it's, uh, it's obviously better after 30 years of practice. Um, so I stopped doing therapeutic hematology and I've become a pure, pure diagnostic hematologist. Um, and there's so much to do there that if you, if you leave the diagnostic aspects of medical practice in, in, in hematological malignancies to tired doctors who've been all day on, on the ward or in a clinic, then you don't get the, you don't have the energy that needs to be put into cancer diagnostics now. Um, so, so all of my comments during this, this discussion will be biased by the fact that I am talking from a diagnostic point of view but but back to your question diagnostics used to be somebody looked down the microscope and pronounced and those pathologists were very very competent people with an exquisite precision of visual recognition recollection But that's now been transformed by first of all immunohistochemistry flow cytometry then came the era of the morphological cytogenetics the karyotypic abnormalities that went on to fish then came molecular diagnostics and now we're in the omics of 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 a plethora of data Uh, and i firmly believe that we need to have medical doctors on those diagnostic platforms alongside very competent scientists and uh, biomedical scientists, because you do need somebody to to maintain the the, the medical, the clinical perspective, right, um, in amongst the the, the the huge array of of technological information that we use in especially in cancer diagnostics and and follow up. Yeah,
0: yes, makes makes perfect sense. Um, so I'd like to go back to the. Uh, the issue of COVID and COVID-induced Congress absence.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, some there's been some pros that have come out of it. As you say, we've been forced to modernize and to think um, through a different lens. It's less expensive. It's greener. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've seen all this stuff about 15-minute cities and that, uh, you know, in the future we'll have limitations imposed on us and our travel. I don't know if that's alarmist or real. Uh, it's, so it's greener. And in some ways, because it's online, it's accessible to more clinicians and scientists, especially those from lesser developed, less wealthy countries. But the downsides, no social interaction, less income for the societies to do their work, provide grants and such like, and less tangible interactions at sessions. I've done virtual sessions and you know, I'm told there's 350 people watching and but there's nothing there's no there's no body language there's no humanity there's you know a few stilted questions what are your thoughts and where do congresses go in the future What what's the future for the EHA as a specific
1: I, I think I, I agree with everything you said I, I think we should just use it as an excuse for evolution Um There are sort of basic concepts that we've worked on. I I don't think any international Congress can now not be hybrid in the sense that we should be offering it to people who cannot, for various reasons, join. And the fact that they can um, watch and at least partially participate by watching is a huge step forward and the, and people who could never get to the EHA Congress can now watch it online. But that said, if I try to go succinctly to the end of my thinking on that process while, while mentioning that we're going to try different options and some will work better than others and that should be an ex- excuse for experimentation in Congress models. The bottom line is, if we want to build confidence in each other and to co-create, we need to meet physically at some point. If we want to consume as a passive consumer, then online is fine. And without going into the sort of details, um, I think there will be a sort of evolution of Congresses towards more platform discussion formats because people follow discussions better than they follow a monologue of 60 minutes with 120 PowerPoint slides. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we will, uh, I have every confidence that EHA will mix and match so that we can increasingly optimize the educational offer. But we do need people to come together and mix. When I was president, I said, I don't want anybody coming into our offices in in The Hague in the Netherlands without staying overnight because it's during the we, we either use either either we have an online meeting because it's a short one-hour meeting that we can just deal with current affairs, or if we're coming, if we're going to that the Netherlands, then we should be we should have enough downtime to build intra-European confidence, which which I think is a fair rule of thumb to apply. Because in a European medical society, a lot of what we're there to do is to make feel people feel comfortable with working with their colleagues from other European countries.
0: Yes. yeah, And again, from the surgical perspective, so many of the really fruitful discussions just come out of, you know, I call them coffee conversations or sometimes it's over something a little bit stronger. Um, that, you know, people are bouncing ideas backwards and forwards and it leads to a clinical trial or it leads to help with a case or it leads to placing a a junior with um, a learning object opportunity or or a new job. Um, Actually, on this platform, EMJ, I had the great honor of hosting a webinar, a couple of webinars actually on biosimilars. And instead of doing the, um, it was just as we came out of COVID, instead of doing the uh, the, the online webinar. We've, we we did it in a, a TV studio and one of the mandates to the faculty was no slides.
1: Mm. There'll be
0: no slides. Let's do this as a presidential debate. Let's pit one against the other and try and have a structured but, but animated discussion. It, it ended up brilliantly. My role was purely as, you know, the interested and slightly dumb surgical mm. um, chair but I think that the result was, was interesting and I think it will force us, as you say, to evolve our thinking and to bring our educational um, tools into, into this century and, and out to the last. So talking of Congress, uh, the next one in Madrid, I believe is on the horizon. You handed over the presidency to Antonio Almeida and you're still head of European affairs. What are the issues that are on your plate what can folks attending the conference uh, expect? And yeah, I mean, you've addressed some of the ways the organization is going to evolve. Well, what's going to happen in Madrid?
1: People come to Madrid because they want to hear the latest science clinical developments in in our field, in both benign and malignant hematology. And they come because they want to meet other people. To hark back to what the, one of our experimentations from the the Covid era was we did a very successful hub with Israel um, just at the end of the Covid period where um, the, the, all of the haematologists the, the from from Israel uh, got together and we sent some, some speakers online of course at that time and so they sort of had a local party and we did think about rolling that out in Europe but then we, we When there were still real fears of being able to cross borders but then we abandoned it for obvious reasons because if people want to go to meet their friends from spanish hematology then they're going to go to the national meeting and, and that our place relative to national societies, especially those for whom English is not their first language, which is the vast majority, and um, we, we work increasingly closely with our national society presidents to try and figure out what we should be doing at national level and what we should be doing at European level. And I think what I've just said about Congresses also applies to healthcare in general, but we could maybe come back to that later. So, so people come to EHA, which is at a nice time of the year. It's in it's in uh, in June, and as an aside, the American meeting, which is obviously the the big annual hematology meeting, is at the beginning of December. Um, And so, so between a a sunny European city and a sometimes not so sunny American one, uh, we think we've got a bit of an advantage there. Um, But they're coming for science and communication. There may be. The whole issue of how much advocacy debate we should put into academic scientific societies is an interesting one. I think as we share the European health space and as the European health space becomes a reality for member states uh, with implications for geographical Europe, there is an issue about how much of the advocacy policy issues we should put on the the podium during a congress, so we're exploring that uh, gradually
0: I think that uh, certainly choosing Madrid as a location you know I'm just a simple surgeon, but boy, I adore Madrid. what a great place to hold a congress so I'd, I'd like to move on to some of your research and and add and you I have to forgive my horrible pronunciation, but NEC-Enfant-Malade and Université Paris-Cité. I hope that was okay. So your work is focused on immature T-lymphoid leukemias and lymphomas, as well as minimal residual disease quantification. Can you talk to us about these conditions, where we are now, where we've come from, and what the future holds?
1: Immature T-cell cancers are very rare. They're either the leukemic form that involves the blood, or the lymphoblastic lymphoma form, which stays in in tissues. Now, why one stays in the tissue, usually primarily the thymus, because that's where we produce our T lymphocytes, and others disseminate to the blood, is is uh, an open. It's still an open issue. There have been some attempts to 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 put the molecular finger on why, but these disorders are all in the leukemic world. B lineage leukemias are very common in children. It's by far the most common childhood leukemia. Um, It's about 85%. So TALL has always been considered a sort of appendage to B lineage leukemias. And there's been huge increases in uh, improvements in treatment of B lineage ALL. But the T cell world was somewhat lagging behind, and it's also lagging behind because um, therapies like um, uh, the, the the bispecific antibodies and CAR T cells are more difficult to do for T cells uh, because of what's called the the, the 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 fratricide, whereby if you've got a if you can train a T cell your own T cells to kill the, the, the leukemic B cells. It's obviously much more difficult to get a, a trained T cell to kill the leukemic T cells, but not its, its, uh, itself. So, so um, the other thing that's, that's, a, uh, that's been an interesting philosophical observation, as well as one with practical consequences is T leukemias get a huge panoply of investigation they get molecular genetics they get all the omics we're now into functional drug testing whereas just by virtue of the fact that virtually the same cancer has stayed in a tissue it will get a histological biopsy which will be put in hopefully some appropriate fixative rather than one that will make all modern analyses difficult and the the panel of diagnostics we give to that tumor is much l- more restricted. Now that's becoming much better with liquid biopsy, with the, the 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 capacity to extract nucleic acids of, you know, for molecular diagnostics from tissues, but it does mean that you have that you have to work closely with hematopathologists. Now. Pathologists and laboratory diagnosticians um, i don 't want to say anything um what would i call it politically incorrect on a podcast, but I think both you and I know that there is a hierarchy of medical specialties all all medical students in all countries know which are the the, the specialties that go first if there 's a ranking in choice of specialty um, and we in the diagnostic world. Are, let's say we're not the brahmins um i love my job i love being a diagnostic hematologist but i chose it by choice i didn't choose it because i was too badly placed on a national qualifying exam which is sometimes what's happened to bi- diagnostic um biologists and pathologists it's a similar story. You, as a surgeon, you know the relationship between um, pathology and surgery, um, and that's also true for what is the place of of molecular diagnostics, precision medicine, in um, in fitting in to classical medical disciplines.
0: That's that's a really interesting observation. I uh, my mind immediately took me back to where I worked in Washington DC at George Washington university and the head of pathology there was a guy named Arnie Schwartz and Arnie was number one, utterly brilliant and a complete crack up. I mean, he used to come into theater to ask if, you know, I had anything for him to look at under the microscope. I said, I'm fixing a hernia Arnie, (laughs) but it's funny that you, that you say that I, in all honesty, I've never really thought about it like that. Um, but, I guess you're right, yes, there is that, that, that hierarchy, but thank goodness for people like you who do want to go and do the things you've done because of um, you know the, what you've helped achieve. So we, we've hinted at uh, politics, medical politics. That's another aspect to medical politics, economics. You've done some work coordinating a French national network aiming to provide equal access to state-of-the-art diagnostics in hematologic malignancies and sadly but realistically money plays a role in
1: medicine absolutely i think i'll hark back to something you mentioned earlier about people who influenced us because i totally agree we need inspiring medical teachers because we do choose our careers based on people that inspire us and one person who inspired me is well known to almost everybody in the medical world and that's sir michael So, so he was a clinical pharmacologist in, in Newcastle, where I went to medical school. So, when I was doing the internal medicine, I was his um, SHO, his senior house officer for six months. Um, and I, you know, I won't give him all credit for the fact that I do have a, a, a penchant for for integrating the economic consequences of our acts. And maybe it's the medical education I received in Newcastle upon Tyne. But for whatever of these reasons, I've always considered that it is partially our responsibility to think about how we can make best use of what, at least in Western Europe, are public budgets. Um, Our taxes pay for our care, so we should do our best with it. Um, And to to sort of put my, my, my energies where my mouth was. I, I, I headed a national program. France, the Ministry for Health in France in, in about 2000 opened up some forward looking programs called, that are called, um, uh, 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 let me t- say it in English, Stick in French. So it was um, help for implementation, for aid for costly technological innovation. And they became health technology exercises, which in France we call medico-economics. Um, and, and without going into the details, I think what we're taught in French medical schools and British medical schools on, on health economics, is, is it's evolving in both countries. But I don't know that it's... Well, it's certainly not the same between the university I'm very proud to practice in now and the one I trained in a long time ago. Um, but to put that into, I think what we're talking about here is what did I do? I, I, got, I got a lot of money at the time in 2004, I think it was, to set up a network for innovative diagnostics for haematological cancers. It was a national program to talk about how we could do appropriate prescribing um, for our different cancers. And everybody said, there's no point. We all know what we should do and well there was money in it so they came and at the end of the first meeting they were all disputing furiously and uh, the program ran from 2004 to 2009 and by the end of it we had provided to the the the, the ministry of health guides for appropriate prescribing in malignant cancers now i looked up and um, how the the impact of that very quickly on the website this morning and i saw that the report had only been cited once so we obviously did something wrong it was in french and, and you know the citable online literature is usually in english um, so that program finished and then more briefly i did another one in 2000 and oh, i don't know about five years ago um with with, with colleagues on on how, how should we cost and how should we find the right space for next-generation sequencing in, in um, diagnosis of haematological malignancies, which was sort of a... We also updated our, our just-prescribing guidelines, um, and, and uh, that's gone back to the Ministry for Health so that they can use it in thinking about how we should cope with... Um, how much should, how do, how do we evaluate the real benefit of appropriate diagnostics? Mm. Because we just used to be, we didn't cost much, we didn't change much, but we're increasingly providing decision-making diagnostics. And once you become decision-making, obviously in the context of precision medicine and the individual patient, Um, But once we become more costly and more decisive, then we need to figure out how to do health technology assessment. And I think even Sir Michael Rowlands, who unfortunately passed away at the beginning of this year, I think even he would admit that we don't know how to do health technology assessment for diagnostics and we're going to have to find out.
0: Yeah, I've, um, I did have the pleasure of meeting him um, a number of years ago and had a, a fascinating conversation about health economics and um, another um, professional friend of mine said that, you know, in, in the new era, we truly are going to have to understand the true cost of the, the health economics because it's unsustainable. I mean, America is spending nearly one in five dollars of GDP on on healthcare and is only catering to a percentage of the population. Um, And there's so many inequities. Doesn't matter whether it's in Los Angeles or, you know, the, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, and it's there are moral and ethical challenges for us as physicians. So let's continue this because I'm fascinated by some recent news. I mean, some of the treatments, the amazing treatments that you guys have come up with for hematologic disease which were unthinkable when I went to medical school are incredibly expensive. How does society deal with this and provide access? For instance, recently in the UK, the first CRISPR therapy was approved. Um, uh, the Cas9 gene editing tool, um, treating sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia uh, called Cascavia. I'm probably mispronouncing that as well. I think it's about 2 million per patient. Can you discuss this sort of innovation? And the cost topic for, I know that you come from the diagnostic world, but, you know, there's no point diagnosing a disease for which there is a treatment available, but we can't afford to pay
1: for it. Absolutely. I'll come back to that. But I, I was uh, just, I'm not changing subjects, but I was with our Indian colleagues in in, in Delhi uh, last uh, last August. And uh, of course, they have good access to generics, so they can get good access to, to good treatments for some of their leukemias, but they can't pay for the molecular tests that tells them whether they need the treatment or not. Yeah. Um. It's a complex issue, and, and at EHA, we've done a lot on on just what you're talking about because we do provide lots of exciting... um innovative treatments, which are very costly, and they are for rare disorders. So, um, you know, what you've just mentioned for thalassemia as a gene editing tool, there are a lot of people with thalassemia. Uh, So the whole um, public health aspects of of costly innovation, if it's applied to a tiny proportion of, of people is one thing, um, let's go back to the CAR T therapies, which were okay when it was just relapsed childhood leukemia, because that's thankfully rare because children very rarely uh, relapse from, from their leukemias nowadays. But now you start using it for, for, for myeloma, it's a huge cost to society. And if we discover CAR T's for lung cancer or for prostate cancer, then what on earth can we do? And I absolutely agree with you. Um, Democratic countries are not going to spend more than, let's say, 10 to 12% of their GDP on health. And and we could spend 100% of our GDP on health, um, although we wouldn't be around to enjoy it because we've spent all the money on that and we've got nothing left for anything else. Um, So how do we put caps on it And you need to speak to a health economist to get a a sort of professional view on that. But my take has been we need to be set at the table because if we can own without multi-stakeholder discussions and those multi-stakeholder discussions have to involve um, industry, governments, regulators, but also the medical profession. And and one aspect that we probably won't have time to to, to really get into in detail is um, we medical specialists have a tendency to talk very specialized talk. And that's that works great when you're at the EHA meeting because we're all talking the same same lingo, the same language. But if we're talking to politicians or regulators, then We've soon lost them or neutralized ourselves between the specialties. So, you know, hematology will say X, and um, lung cancer specialists will say Y, and pediatricians might say something different about gene therapy for thalassemia. And um, so, I think as a profession, in fact, we've done something about it. Uh, four specialties diabetes, one of the cancer specialties, heart, and, and respiratory. In 2009 created something called the Biomedical Alliance in Europe, which has as its main priority to talk with a clear and united voice on transverse medical issues so that the European Commission and uh, Parliament and stakeholders can understand us and we can be um, competent advocates uh, while remaining um, up-to-date professionals, because there's a huge problem in getting experts that can talk clearly in multi-stakeholder formats um, while not having conflict of interest. And just final comment, you do this at a top level because, because one of your activities is doing this kind of podcast, but we need specialists who can talk clearly without getting lost in the minutiae while still remaining sufficiently close to our medical specialties to follow the way things are evolving.
0: Yeah, well said. Um, I, I truly think that these, these are discussions that reflect the humanity of a society and what we want to be as a society and how we want to spend our money. Um, you know, is, is healthcare a right um, as a society? Do we want to offer that to everyone? Um, yeah that i could go down i could go down a rabbit a rabbit warren at the moment but yeah well said elizabeth um, as we approach the end of this i ask all my guests this question if you were granted three wishes uh, by some magical genie in your field of healthcare what might the good professor wish for
1: um, for lots of people to have had as nice of a professional life as i have had Um, and slightly more specifically, as a European haematologist, that our young haematologists can know that the European health space is an open space for them uh, and that that potential for free movement within Europe is also a benefit to our patients so we can progressively optimise what we can do with the budgets we have for equal access to care in Europe. That would be my first choice i would love our discipline of hematology to maintain its diagnostic therapeutic dual nature because that's reasonably unusual and i think particularly for cancers um, we need a, a systems approach where where each one of us who are trying to to cure cancers knows how to understand our cancers Uh, uh, rather than putting them all into a general oncological pot. So that would be my second, but I have little fear that hematology will do other than uh, maintain its diagnostic therapeutic nature. Um, And I think my final wish list would be a a dynamic European health space, which is synergic with and complementary to um, national health structures So that we can do what we should be doing at European level at that level and keeping at national level what should happen Uh, because I consider myself incredibly lucky to be a trans-European in this wonderfully rich cultural tapestry that is our multilingual complicated but uniquely wonderful European space.
0: Well said. Um, Sadly that's all we have time for today I'd like to thank you, Professor Elizabeth McIntyre, for taking the time to speak to us and, frankly, for all your incredible work impacting clinicians and patients uh, all around the world. Thank you. So, folks, uh, please check out the archives, subscribe so you never miss an episode, tell your friends, like us on social media, and log on to the EMJ podcast next week for another fascinating episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.